Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald, the Chief Operating Officer of C.S. Mott Children's Hospital and the Von Voigtlander Women's Hospital. And Lou, on this edition of Women Who Lead, we're going to talk to several women in the community doing amazing work. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to them. As, as you know, as, as we run around the city and do things throughout Southeast Michigan, these three names come up all the time and everywhere. So I'm really excited to talk to them today. Yes, Sue Mosey, Amy Good, and Pamela Ahe Thomas. An interesting and informative show coming up next. Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and I am here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald, the Chief Operating Officer of C.S. Mott Children's Hospital and the Von Voigtlander Women's Hospital. Our first guest today, Lou, on the show is Sue Mosey, the Executive Director of Midtown Detroit. Sue, welcome to the show, and congratulations on being given the Urban Land Institute Michigan's Lifetime Achievement Award. How great is this? Oh, thank you very much. It's a wonderful honor to receive this award, um, you know, especially being the first women uh, that's been uh, selected and um, involving real estate, which, you know, is typically a much more male-dominated field. And you're the first woman to receive the award. That is really cool. Right. So, so tell us, what's going on these days with uh, things over at Midtown Detroit? So talk a little bit about some of the activity there. Um, well, we're still seeing a really strong real estate climate, uh, luckily. I mean, I think because the neighborhood has traditionally really been built on, uh, heavily on rental housing, and that has done very well um, across the nation during, uh, during even COVID period. Um, we've managed to stay pretty stable here in the neighborhood. Um, I think the biggest challenge for us has really been the fact, like everywhere else, you've got more remote work. Uh, happening both with some of the big anchor institutions, Wayne State, Henry Ford, Detroit Medical Center. Uh, a lot of the classes went online. Uh, the university's in the process of bringing those back. CCS now is fully back. So, you know, it's a process and it takes some time. Uh, but during that, we've still brought online lots of new housing units down here and they've been filling and lots of uh, important historic preservation projects have been uh, completed or, uh, or going forward. We have a number of really big signature projects that should be getting under construction in the spring, uh, which include a large development at the corner of Mac and Woodward with the new urban Target store and 350 new housing units there. Um, across from that, another development group, the platform, completed a 206-unit building, which basically leased out all the residential in like six months. Um, and so we've seen some very brisk uh, leasing activity down in that part of the neighborhood. And uh, so, you know, I think that still bodes well over time for the market here. Sue, um, you know, we all, I, I feel like, you know, I spent 28 years of my career in Midtown. And, you know, through COVID, I feel like we've all been in hibernation. Outside of, you know, people and students going online and remote, what, what are some other changes um, that you've had to deal with as we start to open up and change? And are, are there different developments happening because of that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing you saw was obviously, like everywhere, you saw a pivot of a lot of these businesses to different models, right? So all these great fine dining restaurants and things are all still here, but they're probably not doing lunch now if they were. Uh, maybe they're only open, you know, five or six nights, where before maybe they were open seven. Uh, there's still big labor shortages out here that everyone's facing, especially in the food and beverage, but also just in retail in general. Uh, so that's been, you know, a pivot. I think everybody that's managed to survive out here, which have been the majority of the um, more popular locations, um, are doing well, are stable, are bullish about the future here. Uh, so that's that's important. And I think our bigger challenge is with our small independent retail market. And um, because there are much fewer people still uh, from the university as they slowly continue to reopen probably through the rest of this year. Um, but a lot of them have done, have clearly doing a lot more online. Uh, many of them are um, doing, you know, events and parties in their stores. I mean, this is a very resilient and very smart group of entrepreneurs that we have in the neighborhood and um, they are kind of figuring it out um, so a lot of people are having to do sort of these interim <laughs> sort of model shifts yeah. and waiting for the market to return and we don't expect 100% of the market in any of these urban districts because we represent new center as well um, to fully return but you know if we can get up to a 70% return over time um, that combined with I think um, a lot of smart clustering of high quality goods and food and beverage is going to continue to move the district forward. What what about you you talked about some, you know, new new projects coming on board. Um yeah, I mean, there's a lot of new um, small businesses that are coming. I mean, one of the big signature restaurants that's opening, I believe, in early March is Mad Nice, which is a new 10,000-square-foot um, restaurant by Heirloom Hospitality, who owns Prime and Proper and Townhouse and a number of other uh, restaurants in Birmingham and Detroit. And they're opening a flagship restaurant here. So that's happening shortly. We've been working with another Birmingham entrepreneur, a uh, company called Raincheck, and they're planning on uh, launching and getting under construction for a really neat duck pin bowling bar and restaurant up in New Center on Woodward. That's an area that we've been investing a lot in as well uh, to sort of give a front door as it were, to the new center district. Uh, so that should be under construction. They're also undertaking renovation of a historic church for residential. Uh, we have lots of these small, like 30-unit um, new construction projects that are in, in uh, pre-development now with architectural plans being completed. Um, so that's kind of the next wave is a lot of these new construction projects. Um, and most of those are residential with some commercial on the ground floor. Uh, uh, there's another group called Great Water Capital that's putting up a new um, uh, uh, four-story building at the corner of 2nd and Brainerd. That should get under construction. Uh, they've also purchased a historic um, property in New Center for, I think, 80 new loft uh, development there. Uh, the platform is doing a big workforce housing uh, project called Paquette Lofts over on Paquette, which is just to the east of New Center. Uh, that'll be under construction this year. So there's still a ton of activity. Uh, the Roxbury Group is hopefully going to be under construction with the new AC Hotel uh, on Woodward, just south of Mayak. So, you know, a lot of these developments have been delayed because of supply chain issues, interest rate increases, construction increases. But this is a very skilled set of um, developers behind many of these projects, and they eventually are able to, you know, uh, uh, find a model that can work to move forward. 
you know, it sounds to me, Sue, like a lot of this is in residential. Is that what we are going to see moving forward, like a big push for residential as opposed to office space? Yeah, yeah, there has to be that. I mean, that's just reality, right? So you're going to have a certain percentage of office space that's going to be able to be redeployed as office, and many of those models are changing too, but you're going to have to really focus in these in these areas on residential. And we've always been really focused on that because we really believe that the state sustainability long-term for the district is really built on kind of creating like almost like a hyper-local economy within the district. And to do that, you need more people living here. Now, the for-sale housing market has slowed for sure during COVID. People, units are still selling, right. but you're not getting the number of new projects Uh, Many of those developers have sort of put a pause for a while because of the mortgage interest rates. Um, And so, you know, we've we've seen a steady uh, continued um, uh, push for the rental mixed use projects, but the for sale projects, there's still some, but they're very small. Um, And we expect that market hopefully maybe in 2024 to start kind of rebounding here. What are some of the conversations about office space? You know, what are we going to do with all this office space? Well, I think a couple things. So some folks are going to have Class A spaces that are very compelling, and they are going to be the winners. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And other folks that are going to come up with some very creative new models for for the types of amenities, the type of space. um, And uh, they will also, I think, attract market. Um, I think a lot of the just traditional, more old-style space are going to, you know, struggle. It's very interesting, the whole conversation. I bet it's interesting for you as someone who has been involved in Midtown Detroit forever. Uh, and yeah, I bet so, you play so a big I role I have to laugh this. because it's like 35 years. Yeah. And it just feels like the fourth or fifth kind of retooling or repositioning that I've sort of had to go through down here. So right. it started like in the early 90s when there wasn't much going on at all. And then we started all of these sort of uh, pre-development loan funds and historic districts put in place so people could get historic tax credits. And and then we had the whole 9-11 reshift for a while. And then we had a couple of different recessions. And, and now we had the COVID. And, you know, so, I mean, there's always, uh, you know, you always have to be prepared to, uh, you know, rethink and sort of reposition uh, the market in these kinds of districts. And based on everything that you've seen, your history, how are you feeling about this reshaping process? Um, You know, mixed. Um, I've been here, like I said, 35 years now. So it's a ton of additional new work, quite frankly, for everyone, um, because, you know, it just takes way more energy and more capital, quite frankly, to be able to do another shift. But long term, I think if we can get to the model that really is uh, much more tied to strong residential base living back in the urban core of Detroit, um, we'll all all be winners long term. Now, when I go into the city at night or on the weekend and go out to dinner, Mm -hmm. I see a ton of activity. Is that what you're starting to see, too, that people really are coming into the city? Like, definitely the nightlife stuff, the the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, those uh, still continue to be very strong um, because those pull kind of a unique combination of people from the whole metro um, along with the locals, and that's kind of a very important, you know, market. Um, uh, necessity. 
for a lot of the um, infrastructure that's been built, especially around food, beverage, and entertainment down here. Um, so folks that have been in entertainment actually in 2022 have seen their best revenue years ever. So if you're talking about like the Majestic Theater or you're talking about like some of the other, you know, barcades or some of the other places that people are just going to have fun. <laughs> you know, sure. those places have done really well in 2022. So we need more of those. We need definitely more live music uh, locations. It's it's fantastic that Motown has raised all their money for the museum. Yes. They'll create a big performance space there. We're working with a couple of other uh, promoters who have purchased property to do really great smaller music venues in the corridor. Um, a lot of that, I think, is also going to be critical for bringing back sort of the culture and the population back to the back to the district and continuing to grow it because we between about 2014 and 2019 we'd grown the population in the Woodward corridor by 22 percent and that is when Detroit was still losing population so clearly the major push that many of our foundation partners and other lenders and and uh, CDFI partners here like Invest Detroit or Capital Impact Partners or you know the Detroit Development Fund many of us was really paying off in terms of increased population. The other thing that's interesting is talking about new hotels. We definitely need mm-hmm. more hotel space mm-hmm. in, in the mm-hmm. city. And so right. it's good news that we're starting to see some development there, Sue Mosey. Right. I mean, finally, I think of all the ones that are on the drawing boards really actually happen, like we'll have a pretty robust um, hotel hospitality scene um, to attract these conventions and a much more, you know, um, reliable uh, uh, market for large meetings and other kinds of events here. Absolutely. Sue Mosey, Executive Director of Midtown Detroit, thank you for the time today and congratulations on the Urban Land Institute Michigan Lifetime Achievement Award. Very well deserved. Thank you so much. You are listening to Women Who Lead. We'll be back right after this. are listening to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Luann Thomas Ewald. And we continue the conversation now by introducing you to Amy Good, the CEO of Alternatives for Girls. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. Amy, just kind of start out and talk to us. Tell our listeners a little bit about Alternatives for Girls. Sure. Um, Alternatives for Girls uh, serves homeless and high-risk girls and young women. Um, We are based in southwest Detroit, but we serve the whole city and to some extent beyond. We just celebrated our 35-year anniversary. Um, We do our work through a, a variety of services, all in response to the needs that uh, the community has lifted up. We uh, provide shelter and uh, medium and longer term supported housing, uh, street-based outreach to girls and women of all ages who are uh, victims and survivors of sex trafficking and also domestic violence. And we have a prevention program. We work with girls from first grade all the way through high school and beyond who are living with their families. We help them and we help their families help them stay in school, do well, graduate from high school, go on to continue their education. Amy, you talked about street-based outreach. Can you talk about what you and your team do? Sure. 
we one of the things that we do, and this is uh, unique, uh, is that we drive around the streets of uh, all the areas in the city where we know, in particular, there is youth sex work and sex trafficking going on. We drive around the streets. We reach out to girls and women who are out there. We let them know that we are there for them. Uh, we're very respectful. We don't uh, impose anything on anyone, but we offer them, uh, you know, concrete support right there in the street, clothing, food, drink, uh, all kinds of resources, hygiene items. We let them know about our services and we invite them to participate. Uh, but we also let them know that we will be there for them the next day and the next day. Um, the services that we provide, if and when they're ready and interested, include case management, case support, individual work, group work, peer support, and an opportunity to rise through the ranks of our training and support so that they can actually join our staff. Wow. Do you have, um, I'm sure you have many, but is there one story or one girl that sticks out for you of which your team, you know, had you know, provided that support and, like you said, maybe started to work for Alternative for Girls and really help others? Sure. Um, Yeah, I'll I'll share a story of one young woman. Uh, I'll call her Marcia. She was trafficked uh, as a young teen. Uh, She started connecting with our outreach team, uh, but it took her a while. She eventually got away and uh, was uh, and became a peer leader. Uh, she actually was uh, again held actually held captive by a trafficker in a house. Uh, she managed to escape with the support of our team. She really did not have family support, but she worked very hard, um, became stable has her apartment now, is working two jobs, has her own car. Um, At 19 years old, she started a small business on the side. Um, She's provided leadership and support to peers. but And she's doing really well, and we are incredibly proud of her. But I will add that she, like all young women who've experienced what she's experienced, has a lot of work to do. And it will take time for her to recover from the trauma that she experienced. Mm-hmm. How big of a problem is human trafficking in the city of Detroit, Amy Good? It is a very significant problem. Uh, we see thousands of girls and women on the streets every year. Uh, it's, it's, it's a problem that is very, very difficult to maintain accurate data about uh, because so much of it is difficult to track, um, goes unreported. But Detroit is one of the uh, biggest centers of sex trafficking in the country um, due to a number of things, including our international border and the juxtaposition of major freeways uh, that come through or near the city. Uh, it's one of the, It's a city with one of the largest numbers of calls to the uh, trafficking hotline. Um, uh, so it's a, it's a significant problem. Uh, one of the things that we've observed in recent years during the pandemic, but also prior to the pandemic, is that it's shifted, making it even more underground. Uh, sex work uh, transactions happen less 
on the street than they did. They still do, uh, but often they all they're moving to uh, uh, transactions that happen on the internet, which means that girls and women are literally held captive in a house or a building um, or a hotel, and much more difficult to find. Uh, so it's shifted, uh, but it continues to be a big problem, in particular around major events that take place in Detroit. Hmm. Wow, this is shocking. So how are the women getting involved in this? I know obviously mm-hmm. some are doing it voluntarily, but it sounds like a large group, they're just being forced into it. Oh, yes. And and actually that line is very, very blurred. Mm. Um, we, uh, you know, I'm thinking of a, I'm thinking of a, woman who was trafficked by her mother starting at the age of five. Oh, jeez. It's all she knew. It's all that, you know, her her belief was that it was the only thing she could ever do. So when she was an adult and engaging in sex work in order to survive, nobody could say that she wasn't forced into it or coerced into it because she just didn't know that there were options. Uh, this woman, by the way, is also doing very well, um, has worked with us for years. Um, but, you, you you know, there are other ways that uh, victims and survivors get pulled into it. Um, often through a relative, a, I'm using air quotes here, friend or acquaintance, um, often a, a, a victim starts out uh, being pulled into what she believes is a loving relationship uh, somebody who she believes is her boyfriend who who brings her into a, a relationship and then starts perhaps gets her um, involved with drugs and even addicted uh, and then starts trafficking her at, when she's at the point where she really has no choice, uh, either because she's addicted and he's a supplier, because he's the only relationship she has because she's become so isolated or because he's threatening. Mm-hmm. He knows where her grandmother lives. Uh, so it's, but you know, there's a wide range ranging from, as I said, those who get pulled into it as young as children and teens, and they just don't know how to escape. They don't know that there are options where they will be treated with respect and actually given support and help as opposed to just shamed or even uh, treated as criminals. Amy, how is Alternatives for Girls funded? Mm-hmm. We, uh, because uh, we serve those who are not involved in any of the larger systems, they're not in the child welfare system, they're not in the foster care system, they're not in the juvenile justice system, they're not in the mental health system. There's no major steady stream of funding that's ongoing. Um, about half of our funding comes from government sources at all levels, city, county, state, federal, um, through grants, most of which are competitive. They have a beginning point and an ending point. Sometimes you are successful, sometimes not. Um, the other about a quarter of our funding comes from uh, private foundations and corporations, and about a quarter of our funding comes from many, many, many individuals and family foundations. We have many individuals who support us on a monthly basis, even at a modest level, but it adds up. And of course, uh, we have our big signature annual fundraising event every year in March. This year, it's Uh, We're so excited that it's 
International Women's Day, which is March 8th. Uh, it's our role model celebration. We celebrate role, women who are role models in the community. It's, it's at the Henry Ford this year. And how can people get tickets for that, Amy? Thank you for that question. Uh, people can get tickets or look for sponsorship opportunities by going to our website, just alternativesforgirls.org. You have to get the S in there at the end of the word alternatives, but it's all one word, um, no underscores, no blanks, alternativesforgirls.org. And uh, it's very easy to see how to buy a ticket or support us with a sponsorship. How many women slash girls are you able to help every year with this wonderful organization? Mm. Uh, in our different programs, we serve uh, vastly different num- different uh, levels of numbers of girls and women. Uh, some live with us for 18 months. Some we encounter on brief contacts on the street. Uh, but when you add it up, it's, uh, it's uh, between three and 4,000 in a year. Wow, that's, those are pretty big numbers. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. final question, how can we in the community help work on and solve mm-hmm. the human trafficking problem? Yeah. Because what you're talking about uh, with us today and to our listeners is really troubling that this is happening right, right here every day in it Detroit. Is. Wow. It, it absolutely is. It's happening in Detroit, and I will mention it's happening happening throughout the suburbs as well. Um, thank you for that question. One of the things that we work very hard on is raising awareness about sex trafficking uh, and how to protect oneself, how to protect one's children and relatives and loved ones and friends. Um, we do a, a great deal of uh, community education. We're available to come and speak to all kinds of groups in schools, faith communities, uh, any kind of organizations, civic organizations, to raise awareness. Everybody can be part of solving this problem. Um, People, of course, can support us, our work, financially, um, through the the ways that I mentioned, other ways as well, on our website, and people can volunteer. Um, Many of those who go out on the street and reach out to those who are on the street are volunteers. And of course we train them. We have, a, we, we have many mentors um, who are connected one on a one-on-one basis to girls and women in all of our programs. So there are lots of ways to be part of the solution. Amy Good, CEO of Alternatives for Girls. Thank you for the time today. Thank you for helping to raise awareness about human trafficking. And we will definitely have you back on later in the year to talk about this again. Thank you very much, Anne, and I would appreciate any opportunity to do so. You are listening to Women Who Lead. We'll be back right after these messages. And as Women Who Lead continues, Luann, we now say hello and congratulations to Pamela Ahe Thomas. She is the Ahe Jewelry Designer, and Pamela is our first Women Who Lead honoree for 2023. Congratulations, Pamela, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Anne. It's it's an honor, and I am and so humbled by this award. Thank oh my you goodness. so much. It's so well-deserved. Talk a little bit about the work that you do with Ahe Jewelers. Okay. Well, I have honestly, I've been in the 
jewelry industry because this is a business my father started 75 years ago and I started in high school and, and I started just during my breaks and summer vacation coming and helping out and just doing basic things like cleaning and mm-hmm. and just um, helping helping around just just um, getting started and I went to school. I kept going to school, and, and I went to, when I was in college, my major was art. And I still kept working here at the jewelry store, but with no intention of continuing. I thought I was going to go into some field in the art industry, like possibly art education. And then one summer when I was working here, I actually just started doing some drawings, and we created the drawings that I did for like some bracelets and necklaces and it was so exciting to me that I thought oh my goodness I never even thought the possibility of of designing jewelry and it it just kind of happened just by stance like that and it was um so exciting and the creativity was um just so invigorating to me that I ended up staying and 50 plus years later I'm still here and loving it. So that that's a key point. You're talking about you really pulled your passion into your business. Yes, I did. I did. I, I always loved being creative my whole life. Whatever I could do and make something out of anything, it just I, whether I was cooking or gardening, whatever I could do, I always loved to do something creative. So when I was able to be able to create a, a piece of jewelry, I, I didn't actually make it, but just by designing it and watching the whole process of the creation of it, it was so exciting to me that um, I never wanted to leave. And Pamela, you know, I, I feel like every event I go to or every, you know, major thing that's happening, Ahe Jewelers is involved. So your family is so philanthropic. Tell me, did, did that start with your father as well? It did start with my father. So my father came from very, very humble beginnings. His father passed away when he was 13, and he was the eldest child. His mother was an uh, immigrant from Lebanon and barely spoke English, and so he had to take over and be the man of the family. So he started at a very young age, and he knew what it was like to really start from nothing. And Thank God he was so successful in his business, but that just took so much so much hard work on his part. And so when he finally started to make it, he realized he wanted to give back. He knew what it was like to watch people walk, stand in the line at the Capuchin Soup Kitchen or just not to have a home. So he wanted to give back. And so, oh, I think it was possibly the early 80s, we, he said that we need to do something, and so we began our first Capuchin fundraiser, and it's, I think, 41 or 42 years now we've done this annually, and it wasn't only the Capuchins that he wanted to give back to. It was many organizations. We have people coming in all the time asking for donations, and we almost never say no. My dad always said it's better to give than to receive. And so the philanthropy that was brought for my dad and for my mom, we try to carry that on now. 
Thank you for sharing that story. I, I never I never knew that. That's so important, and it just speaks to the culture of your family and your business. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're so, we're very grateful. We're so grateful that we've just celebrated our 75th anniversary, and that we now are in the third generation of family members that want to continue the legacy that my parents began. And you know, you have another great story that you should share with Luann and our listeners, Pamela, about your mom and dad getting started in the business and dad needing mom's ring. I love this story. (laughs) I know. So my dad, early on, my dad brought my mom's ring in to have it cleaned. And he was waiting on a gentleman who wanted to buy an engagement ring. And the gentleman, my dad showed him everything he could. And the gentleman was very polite and said, oh, thank you, but I just don't think anything's for me. And then my dad said, well, wait one minute. Let me just go check. I think I have one more in the back. (laughs) And so he goes to the back and he gets my mom's engagement ring that was being polished. And he shows this gentleman and the gentleman's like, it's perfect. I'll take it. (laughs) And so, of course, you know, my dad, you know, needing to uh, support the family, he sold my mom's (gasps) ring. and, And, you know, when he asked my mom or when we asked my mom, Mom, weren't you upset about that she said no i knew i'd get a bigger one and she did <laughs> that's what i was just gonna say he better have doubled that <laughs> yes he did he that's did cute. yes he did it was yeah it was a great story oh, <laughs> cute. it's a great story it just shows what a great businessman they both well yes. business oh, woman he, and businessman yes. he was very sharp you know oh, he was so impressive. and anyone who ever worked under my dad's regime, they say that they've learned more from him than they've learned in any school or anywhere else. I'm sure. He was very, he was an amazing businessman and he was, he was tough. I mean, he worked us. We worked very hard, <laughs> but we, we all have, um, I, I believe we all have really good work ethics and that was because we worked under my dad. Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful stories. Now talk a little yeah. bit about if uh, somebody wants to come in And maybe they've got a little idea in their mind about either jewelry that they have that they want to redo. So, for example, a wedding ring in a band, or they just want something new. How do you work with them on that, Pamela Ahe Thomas? (laughs) Yes, so that happens all the time. And so what happens is someone may come in, maybe they want something custom made, maybe they want an engagement ring, or they want to redo, you know, an heirloom piece and to make it into something special. So we first, you know, talk to them. We see what it is that they want. If they have any pictures of ideas that they want, we always take them because it's that helps just to get an idea. Um, if they don't, then maybe I'll just come up with some ideas, I'll just sketch out some ideas for them just to get started. And um, the process begins there. I know we do a lot of um, things like with people that have, I just the other day took a ring in from a client whose mother had passed away and she wants to keep the these diamonds but not in the same ring and she wants to put some make them into something that she'll be able to wear every day just to keep her mom close to her mm. and so we're coming up with an idea of possibly a necklace that we can reset all these stones into but it's just it's very sentimental and um that's very important that we get it right 
And so then after we do some ideas, maybe some sketches, then what we do is we create what would um, be known as like a wax model of the piece. And then the customer could come in and take a look at this wax model to kind of get an idea before we cast it into the metal that they want. So they can go along with the entire process as we go through it to make sure that it's going to be exactly what they want and that we create the perfect piece for them. So it's perfectly normal for people to take a look at some of their jewelry and say, this is really important to me, but I need to have it updated. Oh, correct. Yes, we do that all the time. We do that all the time. What are some of the popular metals now that you're seeing that people are using? Well, it used to be, yellow gold used to be really popular years ago. Then it went to white metals like white gold or platinum. Now it's kind of a combination of both of them. Some, you know, I still think that we probably sell more white metal when it comes to an engagement ring. Um, although yellow is, is kind of taking um, a little bit more of a, a upfront stage, but I think white metal is still most popular when it comes to engagement rings. And then in jewelry, um, we used to have mostly white gold for the past few years, but actually yellow gold, again, is um, taking a forefront in the, in the industry. And so I think really yellow or white metals, it's kind of a combination. And you can mix them also. And, you know, when I go out at night, I have this whole little inner conversation with myself about, you know, what to wear. Can you wear gold with silver, or is that just a no-no? Oh, yes. What is the no, fashion no. sense nowadays? Oh, yeah, no. You could wear gold and silver together, white gold and yellow gold. Yes, yes. There's no one way that you have to, one rule that you have to follow. Um, mixing the metals is perfectly fine and actually looks very nice together. Pamela A. Heed Thomas, congratulations on being our first <laughs> Women Who Lead honoree for 2023. Lou, I had to oh. do a little arm twisting here. This woman is very humble, and oh. she's usually behind the scenes doing these beautiful designs, but I told her she couldn't say no to us. You can't. You did, you did say that, Anne, and I said, I'm, I can't say no to you, Anne. I'm sorry, I can't do it. So. Well, we appreciate but, that. So thank you. Thank you. But I am very honored. Thank you. You've been listening to Women Who Lead. On behalf of my co-host, Luann Thomas Ewald, thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend.